How do you react to a really, really bad day? How do you react? Let me paint the picture. Let's say your bad day starts with you being thrown into jail falsely. Bad start, huh? Then being physically abused while you're in jail. Then the powerful people who have thrown you in jail have pulled out all the stops to systematically destroy your reputation in the community you live. Their job has been to make you look like an evil, despicable person. How would you react? Fear? Anger? Confusion? Revenge? Would you start your own social media campaign to redeem yourself? Would you cry? How about this word? Rejoice. Uh, pastor, that wasn't on my short list. Neither was it on mine. Now let me make it a little more complicated. What if those in charge came to you and said, by the way, we will expunge your record, we'll make it go away, your jail. We will wipe out all the attempts to make you look bad. You don't even have to deny your faith. All you have to do is shut up about it. Promise you will never, ever ever talk about your faith again and all your problems go away. I'm, 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 I'm not saying you have to deny your faith, just don't talk about it. And, and leave the city would be good too. Do we have a deal? Now what would you choose? Let's see what the scriptures have to say. Acts chapter 5, verse 40. And when they had called in the apostles, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. Then they left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And in every day, in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that the Christ is Jesus. I want to show you a few key words there. First of all, the first key word I want you to see there is dishonor. They were counted worthy to suffer dishonor. 
That means disgrace, shame, to render infamous using innuendo, insult, and intimidation. It is to strip someone of their dignity and honor, to sully their name and reputation publicly with the aim of destroying the person. That phrase there that you saw, uh, um, count it worthy to suffer, means they counted it dignity for indignity. The Sanhedrin set out to utterly and completely destroy the reputation of the apostles. Their job was to make it where they would slink off in the cover of darkness to the countryside and disappear forever, ground into dust and defeat. I want you to get the picture. They're holding nothing back. Second word I want you to see there is beat. Beat them. Flogging, scourging, to beat with the purpose of removing the flesh. This is the word that was used for the beating Jesus went through. This will leave them forever scarred. Their bodies will heal, but they will feel it every cold and damp night for the rest of their lives. This is the 39 lashes. This is the beating. Now when we get back, if you look a few verses before, the Sanhedrin wanted to kill them. But Gamaliel will stand up and he, as a pragmatist, he could read the tide of popular opinion. He knew that the people would turn against the leadership if they killed the apostles. So he pacifies the leadership. He uses a play right out of a right out of good old Pilate's playbook. He says, hey, it worked with Jesus. It'll work here. Remember, when they beat Jesus, the people were like, yeah, that's okay, but we'd rather have him killed. So he's thinking, you know what, if we just beat these guys, they'll say, oh, well, yeah, they had the right to beat him, but at least they didn't kill him. You see, then he gives this amazing speech. He says, you know, now guys, remember, there, there was this guy, he came up and he, he got a, a cause going, but he died out. And this guy caught up and he got a cause going, but he got killed and they died out. And, and, and so this will probably die out, but, but if it's of God, we can't stop it. Now, that's called fatalism, guys. That's not called sovereignty of God. You need to see something here. This shows how empty what the Sadducees believed had become. You see, we believe in the sovereignty of God. We believe in a personal God. We believe in a God who's in control, but, but our God says your choices still matter. Our choices still matter, but our choices still fit within the sovereignty of God. God's sovereignty is never, ever displaced. And yet, he is saying, oh, no, 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 it's, you know, if we have no choice, we're just, whatever's going to happen, happens. 
He's the ultimate pragmatist who has no relationship with God. And so he says, just beat him. Just beat him. And we'll get by. So they do. I also want you to see something here. This idea that if it's of God, it will grow, and if it's not, it'll die. That's not a scripturally sound idea. That's not the insight of a Bible scholar. You see, we see false teaching and false religions grow and abound all the time. It's just simply pragmatism. Notice the next word, charged. This is a command. It's made clear. They were not to speak. But notice their response. They rejoice and they don't shut up. How do they get here? How do they get this boldness? How do they get to be such rock-solid faith that rejoices in the face of adversity? How do they become these kind of men? Well, go back with me to verse 12. Go back with me to verse 12. Now, we've already talked about chapter 5, verses 1 through 11. You say, Pastor Greg, I don't remember us talking about it. Well, you have to go all the way back to January chapter January chapter, January 21st, we talked about that way back then, and so I'm not going to repeat that sermon for you. If you want to, you can go back online and listen to it, so we're, we're just going to let you fill in the blank there. That was Ananias and Sapphira, but let's see what happens. Let's see how they became that kind of church. Those kind of men with that kind of faith. Now many signs and wonders were regularly done by the people by the hands of the apostles. And they were all together in Solomon's portico. None of the rest dared join them, but the people held them in high esteem. And more than ever, believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women. The apostles are preaching, performing signs and wonders, and people are believing. Now... I'm going to have them show you in a moment a picture, but not yet. We we have a problem here. How many of you see it? Oh, good. I'm the only weird one. Okay, good. Would you look at where it says, now many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles, and they circle that in your mind, we're all together in Solomon's portico, and none of the rest dared join, circle them. But the people held them in high esteem. Who are they referring to here? Now, if you have a study Bible, it'll probably tell you it could be one of two groups. It could be the believers, the the church, or it could be the apostles. You say, Pastor Greg, why are you losing sleep over this? Well, like I said, I'm weird. But this is called an ambiguous thing in the original language. 
It's ambiguous here. You say, why is it important? Well, I'll show you in a minute. But I want to teach you something about how to interpret Scripture. Now, when it's ambiguous in the original language, you say, is that a problem? Not to the original readers. They knew exactly what it meant. You see, the reason why the writer didn't tell them was it was obvious to them. And he wasn't going to insult their intelligence. But we get confused. Now, if you have an NIV or New Living Translation, they have already made the, the assumption for you. They have told you that it is the group of believers or the ecclesia. And that's, that's fine. They, they, they can say that. I disagree, but they can say that. And I'll show you why. Now, let's go to the picture. This is Solomon's porch, or Sol Solomon's portico. It's that whole area underneath where all the pillars are. Okay? Remember when Jesus came in and said, you've turned my house to a den of thieves, my father's house. That's what he's talking about. It's that area. I mean, it's packed. It's huge. Now, the best way for me to help you understand it is this way. Imagine if I said, we're going to have a church service at Mall of America in the food court during the Christmas season. without amplification we're just going to go sit in the food court and we're going to have communion and prayer and i'm going to teach the word and we're just going to oh, hopefully everybody's going to hear that's what it's like in solomon's porch so let's go back to that previous slide could we so read it with me first and we're going to put, I'm going to put in the word church, and then I'm going to put in the word apostle and see which one you think fits better. All right? So, regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles, and the church were all together in Solomon's portico. None of the rest of the rest dared join the church, but the people held the church in high esteem. Now, they're all... So now we've got two parts of the church. We had the church that accepted Christ and the church that accepts Christ later, but they don't want to come and hang out with the church that had already accepted Christ. Do you see the confusion? Now let's try it with apostle. Among the hands of the apostles. And the apostles were all together in Solomon's portico. None of the rest dared join the apostles. But the people held the apostles in high esteem. Does it fit a little better? Yeah. Why is that important? Because I want you to see what the early believers were. They're afraid. They won't join them. Why? Because they're scared. Why are they scared? They're scared of the religious authorities. 
They're frightened. And they're baby believers. Guess what? When we accept Christ, we don't come out fully matured at the moment of salvation. We come out as babies. We've got to grow in our faith. We've got to grow in maturity. And that's why the apostles had to do two things. They had to teach and they had to model. They had to live out their faith in front of them. I want to talk to all of you believers who've been walking with Jesus for a while. Are you modeling your faith in front of the less mature? You have a responsibility. There are less mature believers who need to be able to look at you and say, yeah, that's what a mature believer looks like. I need to look at their lives and know what it looks like to live for Jesus. That's what it means. Let's go on. Go past the... Uh, so, now notice at 5.15. So that they even carried out the sick into the streets and laid them on cots and mats. Now I want you to see this word, cots and mats. One is a term for the poor and the other is a term for the rich. Isn't it true? Illness doesn't care if you're poor or rich, does it? Strikes us all. Now catch this. That as Peter came by, at least his shadow might fall on some of them. And the people also gathered from towns around Jerusalem, bringing the sick and those afflicted with unclean spirits, and they were all healed. In other words, they were coming in. The whole communities were coming in and they were being healed. But notice something here. i got to take just a a moment to, to take here and take just a, a little bit of a soapbox. I hope you forgive me. They were all being healed. And some were so desperate that they just wanted Peter's shadow. Have you ever felt your back's been against the wall? So desperate. Illness can do that. Tragedy can do that. It can push your back against the wall. In our day and age, we see that all the time. Now I want you to notice a couple things there. First of all, this was Peter. And we don't know that if Peter's shadow did heal, we don't know that. It doesn't tell us in that passage that his shadow healed. It doesn't say that. We do know that whoever came was healed, though. So we don't know if, if it did. Maybe it did. Maybe it didn't. We don't know. But I know there are some who are out today saying, well, you know what, because of this passage, uh, if you'll send in money to me, I will pray over a hanky or I will pray over a bottle of water or I'll pray over some oil and send it to you for a certain price. Because it worked for Peter, it'll work for me sending it to you. And they take advantage of those who are desperate. I want you to know something here. Peter didn't charge. 
It was free. Just like the grace. Just like mercy. And friends, if your back is against the wall and you want someone to pray for you, the elders here stand ready to pray for you and we won't charge. This church stands ready for, to pray for you and it's never going to charge you a dime to pray for you. So save your money. There are some Christian hucksters, and I don't mean Christian in the real sense of the word, out there trying to take money from people. And I can understand when your back's against the wall and you're desperate. In those moments, turn to your church, turn to other believers and have them pray for you. They don't have any special powers. Turn to the body. Okay? Time to get off my soapbox. They were healed. Verse 17. But the high priest rose up and all who were with him, that is the party of the Sadducees, and they were filled with jealousy. Now this word jealousy means envy that manifests itself in a volcanic, fiery rage or wrath that wants to punish or destroy. Isn't that powerful? I mean, we look at it and we go, jealousy, big deal. Think of it, a volcano of wrath that wants to destroy and they arrested the apostles and put them in public prison. But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out. Now, this is the most polite angel you will ever bump into. He was taught right because he locks doors behind him. I want you to see this. You say, I don't see it in the passage. You will. He is so polite. And it's going to catch up. So he takes them out. And this is what he says to them. Opened the prison doors, brought them out and said, go and stand in the temple. Then that is literally go and take your stand in the temple. That's literally what it means. And speak to the people all the words. And, and that word speak to the people is continue speaking to the people all the words. In other words, continue speaking what you were speaking when they arrested you. In other words, keep teaching what you were teaching. All the words of this life. What is the words of this life? The Gospel of Jesus Christ. Including His death, burial, and resurrection. Now, who arrested Him? The Sadducees. What did the Sadducees not believe in? The resurrection. Oh, ho, ho, ho. talk about pushing buttons. In a moment, we're going to see all the buttons that this message is going to be pushing. Oh, my. Oh, my. These guys are headed for trouble. But notice what happens next. I call it the great oops. So here's what happens. Now when the high priest came and all who were with him, they called together the council. That's the Sanhedrin. 
and all the senate of the people of Israel. Now there's 71 of them. Now they all didn't have to come together, but they were getting ready to get rid of this Jesus thing, and they were all together to see it, and sent to the prison to have them brought. But when the officers came, they didn't find them in the prison. So they returned and reported. Oops. Now, next slide. We found the prison securely locked. See, I told you he was a really polite angel. Locked the doors behind him and everything. And the guards standing at the doors, but when we opened them, we found no one inside. Now, when the captain of the temple and the chief priests heard these words, they were greatly perplexed about them, wondering what would come, this would come to. They're pulling out their hair. They're going, what's going on? We, we put them in there and they're gone. What do we do? Where are we going to find them? Now, this next part's even more funny because you don't see it in the Greek. But it's the idea that this guy is running up breathlessly. So he's running up, he's going, hey, 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 they're standing in the temple and they're teaching the people. What? And the captain with the officers went and brought them. But look at this key phrase. This key phrase. Not by force. Do you think they wanted to use force? Oh, yeah. But remember way back when who was being held in high esteem? The apostles. By who? Well, not by force, for they were afraid of being stoned by the people. Now, the early church we already established, they're scared to death, so they're not going to be throwing rocks. So who's going to be throwing rocks? The people of the community. Why? Why would the community come and protect the apostles? One, they'd been standing forth teaching the Word of God. Two, hey, you better be nice to this guy because he healed Grandma. My mom, my brother, my dad, they were dying. Also, we're going to see in the next chapter, they're taking care of widows and orphans. Hey, they fed me. They visited me in prison. They're doing good for our community. What in the world are you doing to them? 
They're blessing our community. When was the last time you guys blessed our community? So when the officers came, they said, Sirs, would you care to join us? Because they saw a few people bending down and picking up some rocks. Apostles said, sure. We'll join you. So they come in. Next part of the story. And when they brought them, they set them before the council. They are in the grilling seat. And the high priest questioned them. Normally it would have been somebody else, but they are livid, saying this. We strictly charged you not to teach in this name. Notice he can't even bring himself to say the name of Jesus. He won't even say the name Jesus. Yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching. And you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. In other words, you intend to point to us and say we're guilty for his death. I want you to catch this. Have you ever wondered how they slept the night that they put Jesus on the cross? Have you ever wondered? I'll tell you exactly how they slept. They slept like a baby in a sleep number bed. They slept with clear consciences. Here's why. They believed. They believed this. And here's what they're saying. We are Jerusalem. We are the temple. We are God's landlord. We are the one who speaks for God. When you see us, you see God. When you hear us, you hear God. Who do you think you are to defy us? Because what's best for us is best for the temple, which means it's what's best for God, and it is definitely His will. When we killed Jesus, it was to save the temple. That was the best thing we could do. So don't you go trying to make us look guilty. Because we weren't. So God speaks to him through Peter and the apostles. He presents the gospel to them. And he starts pushing their buttons. But when Peter and the apostles answered, he said this, we must obey God rather than man. But number one, you're just men. You're just men. You're not God. But number two, the God of our fathers raised. You may not believe in resurrection, but it happened. Jesus. Yeah, the name you won't say. 
whom you killed. What do you mean you, you, you won't accept his blood? Fact is, you killed him. How did you kill him? By hanging him on a tree. That means you tried to make him into a curse. That's what it meant. And he became our curse. You thought that you won by doing that. (laughs) But you didn't. Why? Because this. Because God exalted him at his right hand, the highest place he could put him as leader or prince and savior. Next button. To give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sin. Now when he says to give forgiveness to, repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sin, he's saying this. Real Israel repents. You're not repenting. You guys must not be real Israel. Did you catch that? (laughs) We're the guys who run Israel. You may run it, but you're not the real Israel. Real Israel is the ones who repent. And we are witnesses to these things. Now get this last button. And so is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey Him. And guess what? We've got the Holy Spirit and guys, you don't. Talk about button pushing. Now I want you to catch this. When God pushes our buttons, it's not like our siblings. Our siblings do it just to irritate us. Our spouses push our buttons. Well, Donna, I won't I won't answer that, will I? <laughs> God pushes our buttons for one of two reasons. He either pushes our buttons to bring conviction for the purpose of repentance so that he may show us mercy or he pushes our buttons to show us judgment. For these guys, it's judgment. For you and I today, I beg of you, if he's pushed your button, I beg of you that it would be for conviction leading to repentance. Because we have a God who loves to show mercy. So, of course, they fell to their knees and repented. And the whole place broke out in praise to God. That's the Brawley Revised Standard Version I'm quoting from. Let's look what the real Bible says. And when they heard this, 
they were enraged. They didn't care anymore. They didn't care that there was a group outside ready to stone them if they hurt these guys. They didn't care. And the guy who saved their a faith that's bold. A faith that rejoices even when everything goes wrong. Well, I, I want to let you know a couple things. Number one, take heart. All of us can have that kind of faith. You see, we're going to see in the book of Acts that yeah, this church didn't have it in the beginning, but it will. And in fact, that's one of the reasons why I want throughout church history we see people who don't have that faith grow into that faith and have that faith. And then it encourages us to develop that faith. Secondly, it's called discipleship. It's a process. We grow in that faith. Thirdly, it begins by knowing and loving the real Jesus Christ. This is what strengthened the apostles. They knew the real Jesus. You say, oh, Pastor Greg, they're just... I didn't live with Jesus. They did. They lived with Him for three years. Okay, I, I'm off the hook. No, 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 no. They knew Him not by living with Him, but because He taught them about Himself using the Scriptures. Did you know that? For three years, He taught them about Himself. He used the same Scriptures we have, the Old Testament. And then, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, God gave us the New Testament so that we might know the real Jesus Christ and His teaching. The real Jesus Christ and what He wants us to know and believe. We call it words like theology and doctrine, but those words just simply mean how we know the real Jesus Christ. Why is that important? Because we want to know the real and true Jesus, not the one that we want to shape in our own image, not the one that culture wants to make for us. We want something more than the one that is the emotional high we get from a song or a poem. We want something more than what some of the devotional lit literature is out there. We want to know the Jesus Christ of the Bible, the true living God of the Bible, so that we can know Him in the midst of hardship. And when we know Him, anchored in real truth and hardship comes and it will. Trials come and they will. We can stand firm in the truth and find the hope and strength we need. I call it being gospel-saturated. It is followed by being committed to knowing, obeying, and growing in His truth. When they're arrested the second time, it was after being told to go and take your stand and teach the gospel. And finally, it is enhanced by seeing God at work in you. And so we're going to see more in the days ahead.
Now next week, we're going to see in chapter 6 what happens when Christians fight and how to find our way out of it. And what happens when you're in a situation you can't win. So I hope you'll be back and join us next week.